The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have, have a few moments of silent prayer. Then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have that you have given us your word that it is a sure foundation for our thinking and for our lives and Father, it is a guide and direction for everything that we do. Father, now as we study your word, continue our study through Hebrews and as we continue to be challenged by your word and by God the Holy Spirit as we advance spiritually, we pray that we might take the th- these things that we learn this evening and the Holy Spirit would drive them deep into our own souls, that each of us might see how these things apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. Hebrews 5, 13 to 15 focuses on the fact that these Hebrew Christians had regressed in their spiritual life. They had become lazy with regard to taking in the Word, lazy with regard to doctrine, and as a result, they could no longer take in solid food, but they could only take in milk. One of the interesting things about being a pastor is that the local congregation is nothing more than an old-fashioned one-room schoolhouse. And that's one of the challenges, because spiritually, there are some of you who are uh, in kindergarten, and some of you are... Uh, wanting to push into graduate school, so to speak. And you have one pastor who's got to communicate to everybody in between, and so we hit doctrine at different levels, and we hit doctrines with different degrees of complexity, and sometimes you hit things that are a little tough for you to chew on, and I recognize that probably the last month or so, as we've gone through a lot of this stuff related to epistemology, that's how you know what you know, uh, that that is a little tough for everybody. If you notice, I didn't use anything like epistemological rehabilitation. <laughs> but if you pay attention to the last month, that's what I was talking about. I mean, it's a great term. It's just such a heavy, complex term that most people don't even know what it means, but it just means to renew your thinking and to learn how to think. And part of learning how to think has to do with discernment, and that's what we talked about some with apologetics and last week some when we were talking uh, about C.S. Lewis. And as you advance and mature as a believer, because you have doctrine in your soul, because you know doctrine and you start applying doctrine in terms of thinking, it challenges you because you have to learn how to sift things, how to... Uh, take things that are good and keep those things and 
uh, recognize things that aren't quite as good. And too often, the decisions that we make in life aren't always decisions between what's good and bad. They're decisions between what's good and better. And that's where it gets a little challenging. But we all read things. We hear different pastors teach. We hear different uh, interpretations of Scripture at time. You read different books written by uh, different men. And so you have to exercise discernment. And that only comes from a study of the Word and practice at application. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here in these verses. Because they've regressed, they can't exercise discernment anymore. Because they can't exercise discernment, they're not making wise decisions. Because they don't make wise decisions, they are regressing in their spiritual life. They're operating in carnality according to the sin nature. So for the last month or so, Uh, Depending on which class you were in on Tuesday night in Genesis and here on Thursday night, there's been a a complementary study as we've talked about divine guidance, we've talked about decision-making, we've talked about the role of of reason and experience, uh, mysticism, all of these different things. Tonight we're going to come back and talk about, uh, finish talking about something I began three weeks ago and we interrupted it. Now we're going to get back to the leading of the Spirit. But in Hebrews 5.13 we read, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What's the principle? The principle is that you can't grow beyond the level of the doctrine you're being taught. If all you get fed is milk, you will never mature as a believer. You'll never get out of nursery school. You'll never get out of spiritual diapers. You'll never get into first grade. And one of my favorite quotes or statements that I love to quote, was one made by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Earl's a chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary up in Portland, Oregon. And Earl's up in his uh, probably late 70s now. And he's just one of these what old-school, crusty theologians. And I love Earl because he just doesn't hold back. And about, oh, I don't know, 13 or 14 years ago, he was a keynote speaker at a conference, pastor's conference that we had, like the one we just had here, he was the keynote speaker in the morning at a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And at that conference, he made a statement, just, in, just as he talked, but one thing stood out in my mind. He made this statement that the church today, the, the problem with, with the evangelical church today is it is the largest nursery in the world. And the nursery workers, which are the pastors, don't have a clue how to get people out of diapers. And the sad reality is that he just, he just nailed that one right on the head. There is not one pastor out of 10,000 who has a clue what spiritual growth is all about. I mean, how, you sit down with, I sit down with pastors all the time and say, draw me a blueprint of how a person grows as a Christian. Uh, you see this blank look on their face. They don't know the process of procedure. So they're just stabbing at the dark every Sunday morning, and every message tends to hang in a vacuum, and, and nobody's growing. They may learn Bible stories, and they may learn a few principles here and there, and they may learn a lot of garbage in the meantime, but they don't have any idea how a believer grows from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Now, I know some of your parents. Some of you are good parents. I hope all of you are good parents. Some of you may have been lousy parents. But I think one of the characteristics of good parents is that they take time to think about what is involved 
in maturing their children and taking them through all the different circumstances, decision-making processes, learning experiences necessary to take them from uh, being a child to being a mature adult so that at the age of 18 when they graduate from high school, they are ready to go make good, wise decisions. Not that they always will. We know that. We don't always make good, wise decisions. But that's the purpose of being a parent. The purpose for being a parent is to work yourself out of a job so that when they're 18, they don't need you as a parent anymore. You've done your job. It's supposed to be over with. You should understand facts about physical facts, about nutrition and and uh, vitamins and all proper uh, balanced meals, all those kinds of things, so that they can grow well physically, but also uh, emotionally and spiritually. That all goes into it. Well, as a pastor, you're the parent of a whole bunch of folks who are growing spiritually, and it's my job and the job of every pastor is to teach and to train people. You know, most pastors, I don't, I don't know what they are. I think they're just. I don't know what the word is, they're facilitators or they're, uh, you know, they're, they're CEOs of a large business, which is a local church, or all these other models come in, and nobody seems to understand the shepherding as a metaphor in Scripture that's used for a pastor has to do with taking the sheep to the, to the fields where they can eat the right kind of food and keeping them away from the, from the wrong kind of food, and it has to do with leadership, leadership in that spiritual dimension, taking them to places where, where the sheep can grow and mature. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. This is a very pastoral letter. Now, that, maybe that will challenge your view of what it means to be a pastor. So many people today don't know. Uh, it's funny. Even men I know who are great teachers, and I've had tremendous teachers in seminary, in Bible classes, or heard them at conferences. But then when you go hear them on Sunday morning, what they do on Sunday morning is totally different from what they do on Tuesday night or Thursday night. If you've noticed, what we do here on Sunday morning isn't any different from what we do on Tuesday night or Thursday night. And there's a reason for that, is that the job of the pastor is to, produ- is to provide what is necessary to produce growth in the sheep. And Sunday morning sermons in typical homiletics classes focus more on encouragement rather than teaching how to live, teaching the skills for living the spiritual life. And as a result of that, people are encouraged, but they don't know what they're being encouraged about. Oh, just go out there and live the Christian life. Well, what is it? How do I do it? What are the skills involved? What are the techniques involved? They don't know. And most people only show up at church when? Sunday morning. So 90% of the people only show up once a week, and they're not getting taught any content. That's reserved for the people who really want to go somewhere on Wednesday night or, or Tuesday night or Thursday night, whenever it is, 10% of the crowd. So the other half gets pablum on Sunday morning. They think that's all there is, so they never are encouraged to want more. And yet, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we are to desire the sincere milk, the pure milk of the Word, that we may grow thereby. That's a command to desire or hunger for the Word. Well, we see the same use of this metaphor of milk for the Scripture in Hebrews 5.13. Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the Word. And I'm going to translate that message 
pertaining to righteousness. It's an objective genitive. The word pertaining to righteousness, for he is a babe. And the word there translated unskilled is apheros, meaning inexperienced, unskilled, or ignorant of true doctrine. He's not practicing those spiritual skills that we talk about that are necessary to solve problems and to move forward in the, in the spiritual life. They're unacquainted with those things because all they get is basics related to salvation over and over and over again. You can always go to certain denomination churches, and I think there's a book somewhere that's called 5,000 Different Ways to Say the Gospel. And that's it. And they've got 5,000 different gospel sermons, and that's as far as it goes. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food belongs to those who are full age, or solid food is for those who are maturing. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, what I'm doing here right now, and have been for several weeks, is application. But it's a different form of application than what most people think of as application. See, many folks think application means you're going to give me five points on how to use uh, grace orientation as a problem-solving device, or you're going to give me ten points on impersonal love, or you're going to give me five ways I can be a better husband, or six ways I can be a submissive wife, or nine different ways I can have an effective prayer life. That's what most people think of as application. But that is a superficial application. It's good, and many of those are fine and good principles that we all need to learn But see, there's something that goes beyond that that's a little deeper, and that's that whole framework of thinking that envelops uh, all those skills. And that relates to solid food. So solid food belongs to those who are mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, reason of use is really a bad translation. The word in Hebrew is hexus, meaning skill or proficiency. Those who consistently practice what, what they're taught, who consistently practice the spiritual skills, confession of sin, walking by the Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, a personal sense of your eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind. Uh, it, all of these spiritual skills are what's necessary to grow as a believer. Now, by practice, they have their senses exercised. Exercise relates to discipline from the Greek word gymnazo. This is discipline. Discipline isn't always fun. If you've been in the military and you've been through boot camp, that's what discipline's all about. That was not the most fun you ever had in your life, probably, was going through boot camp with a drill sergeant because you had to practice certain things over and over and over and over again. And as a pastor, part of the pastor's responsibility is to teach things over and over again until they, until they finally finally begin to click. And, and it's true for all of us. We go through and we listen to things and we hear things and we hear the same lesson over and over again. And one day we go, oh, yeah, that's what that's all about. Finally figured that out. That's what he's saying. And, and we're all, we all learn at different rates at different speeds and different things come together at different times. And so it's that, that constant practice. And we, I'm convinced that we only grow, we can only grow, as I said earlier, we can only grow to the level which we're being taught, but 
I'm a firm believer in the fact that teaching needs to be about an inch over everybody's head. Not all the time, then you'll drown, but a lot of the time. I mean, the, the professors that I remember in college, the teachers that I had in high school that I really liked and respected and was attracted to were the ones that made me kind of stand on my tiptoes mentally to figure out what it was that they were teaching and saying. And I swear, my freshman, my freshman Western Civ prof, who I've communicated with now and then over the years, who I don't think is a believer, and I've argued against his liberal Protestant theology for years, uh, and, and those of you who know Paul Shockley over at Pine Valley, he was one of Paul's mentors going through undergraduate work as well. We have that in common. But he, I swear he gave us graduate books to read in undergraduate courses. But I've never been so challenged and prepared for things I did later on than somebody who was teaching just a little bit over my head. So sometimes if I'm a little bit over your head, that's why. I want you to stand on your tiptoes because... There's a lot of growing that we all that we all need. Well, as this passage says, it's through discipline, and usually to learn discipline, you have to have it imposed from outside, which is the pastor toward you, uh, by having your senses disciplined to do what? To discern both good and evil. This is the ability to evaluate, to distinguish. To it's the ability to think critically about what you hear, what you read, what you see. And so uh, that's what sort of a framework for what I'm going to do next as we go into a study of the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is a phrase that is misused and abused by way too many people, and good people too. And it was. A, I remember hearing a, a classmate of mine, or maybe he was a couple years older than me, was going to write his THM thesis on the leading of the Spirit, and he told me what his view was, and I went, huh? Well, now I believe that, but it just took a while. I'd never heard that because everybody you hear talk about the leading of the Spirit has a tendency to equate it with the guidance, divine guidance, divine direction in decision-making, not decision-making related to the moral will of God as to what's right and what's wrong spiritually, but decision-making in the non-moral areas of life, decision-making related to whether or not I ought to go to uh, Texas Tech or Texas A&M or whether or not I ought to live in Houston, Texas or Preston, Connecticut or whether or not I ought to go to the West Coast or the East Coast or whether or not I ought to go in, you know, this is where, don't, don't get too upset guys whether or not I ought to go in the Army or the Navy no wars uh, you know, these are non-moral decisions but they are real decisions that we all have to make in life and we wrestle with them whether or not to invest money in this or in that or buy this house or buy that house whether to have three kids or four kids and uh, all these kinds of decisions that we face in life are non-moral issues and people wrestle with these things we all do and we want God to tell us what to do and we've gone through this in divine guidance we want God to tell us what to do because basically then we can blame God if things don't go right I mean, that just gets right down to, to the bottom line is if things don't go right, we can blame God, and we just don't want to take the risk to make a decision and say, I'm going to go here and I'm going to study this, take this course and, and risk this and then have it fail. We want to make sure that, that God's going to tell us it's okay. 
we're just so insecure. We want to treat God like, you remember Linus and Peanuts and his security blanket. We think God is our security blanket. And in some sense, he is our security, but he is not our security blanket. Now, the leading of the Spirit is not the same as divine guidance. So this is a question that we are part of what we're answering here. Is the leading of the Spirit the same as divine guidance? Now, one reason it's important to do this is because as American Christians, we are the, maybe not victim isn't the right word, but we are the objects of a long train of historically poor Christian vocabulary. And as a result, we have people walking around asking folks if they want to invite Jesus into their heart. And the Bible never expresses the gospel that way. It says, well, do you want to commit your life to Jesus? And the Bible never expresses the conditions of salvation with that kind of terminology. And we have people who, uh, who today, I just noticed it, I walked into a grocery store and there was a lady out there representing some church and she said, how are you doing? And I was polite and I said, I'm doing just fine. How are you doing? She said, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. That's, and I've heard that so much and you hear that. But what does that mean? We take these phrases from scripture and we take them out of context and use them again and again and again and they end up becoming impoverished of all meaning. And all substance. And the leading of the Spirit and divine guidance have gotten confused to where people think that, that that's what the, this phrase, the leading of the Spirit, or leading, technically it's leading by means of the Spirit. Romans 8.14, Galatians 5.18 is talking about God telling you what to do in the day-to-day, down-to-earth decisions excuse me, that we all make. And good theologians aren't much help at times, like Charles Ryrie. And I just love this quote. We started with this several weeks ago, and so part of this evening is, is review so we can get back on this track. But this is the kind of thing that I used to love to do when I was teaching theology at the College of Biblical Studies years ago. And uh, I love to do in classes is take a quote like this and put it on the final and say, okay, now write an eight-page critique of this, of this quote. And any good Bible college student ought to be able to do that, not to mention a seminary student. Just because it is written in a book doesn't mean it's right. And even if it's written by a good theologian doesn't mean he's always right. And I recommend Ryrie's Basic Theology to many people. It is a very good basic, or actually it's an intermediate theology today, when you realize how how low the bar of expectation has dropped. Uh, what used to be basic is pretty advanced nowadays. So Ryrie states, and this is his one paragraph on divine guidance, or the leading of the Spirit, actually. He begins by quoting Romans 8.14, and then he says, Leading is a confirmation of sonship, for sons are led. This work of guidance is particularly the work of the Spirit. Romans 8.14 states it, and the book of Acts amply illustrates it. So he's going into Acts as an illustration. Now, one of the first things I learned in, in, in seminary was that you don't go to Acts for doctrine because it's a transitional book. That means it's a transition between the age of Israel, 
and uh, church age. And Ryrie recognizes that. He's not using Acts for the foundation. He's using it to illustrate it. But as we pointed out when we went through and looked at all of these verses, they don't substantiate his point. He then goes on to say, This ministry of the Spirit is one of the most assuring ones for the Christian. The child of God never needs to walk in the dark. He is always free to ask and receive directions from the Spirit Himself. Now, we can ask, are we to pray to the Holy Spirit? That's one question. Look at that last sentence. He's always free to ask the Spirit Himself. Are we to pray to the Holy Spirit? No. We're to pray to God the Father. The point, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. That's in Romans 8. When we don't know what to pray for, we know the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. So we don't pray to our intercessor. You pray to the one He's praying to. You don't pray to Jesus because He's our intercessor. We pray to the Father. All the examples in Scripture, are always, prayers always directed to the Father. He's the head of the family. And so uh, we have trouble sometimes understanding that in terms of the relationships in the Trinity, that there's an authority structure in the Trinity, and the Father is the boss. That doesn't mean he's more equal. See, as Americans, we have problems with authority because we think if somebody's in authority, they're better than the person that's under them, and the person that's under is inferior to the person who's, who's in authority, and that's not always true. Many of us have had to work for people who were mentally, spiritually, morally inferior to us. And that's where the test was, was we had to submit to their authority. So authority is not the same, has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. So we don't pray to the Spirit anyway. And what about receiving directions from the Spirit? How does, how does that happen in an era today when revelation has ceased? And there is no more special revelation. There is no more, uh, you know, God doesn't give one flash for yes and two flashes for no. You don't get the Urim and the Thummim like the priests in the Old Testament have with these different vibrations. And we covered all of that in, in divine uh, guidance. So how are we going to look at this statement? Another error that is made here is that the phrase sons of God in Romans 8.14 is a different word in the Greek than the phrase translated sons of God in John 1.12. John 1.12, I think, was said the second verse I ever memorized. The first was first John 1.9. When I was two years old, that was the first complete sentence my mother said I ever, I ever stated. It was First John one nine. She knew I would need that. The second was John one twelve. For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. But there is a different word there. It's techna, meaning a child, meaning a member of the family. Whereas here it is huios, meaning an adult or mature son. Now that's important because it tells us that what what Paul is talking about in Romans 8.14 is not entry into the family, but maturity within the family. It's not entry into the family, but maturity within the family. And maturity within the family is a result of being led by the Spirit. Now, Ryrie, in about two pages after he after he has this comment, has a great discussion on the difference between the two. Just, I think there are just some editorial issues here. This is almost a verbatim statement taken out of one of the first books he ever wrote back in the early 50s. And in light of other things that, that uh, Dr. Ryrie taught, uh, I just feel like he just, he just went back. And I've seen this in many places in basic theology where he just, he just went in and took things 
uh, from earlier works and put those in there without rethinking the paragraph. He relates being led by the Spirit to divine guidance. Now, the question we have to ask is to go to the passage itself, go to Romans chapter 8 and say, is Romans 8 really talking about divine guidance, or is it talking about something else? Now, of course, at a superficial level, it will appear to us that because the word led is there, that it means being guided or directed. But there's nothing in the context that suggests that. First of all, daily down-to-earth decisions are not in the context. You can read the whole chapter of Romans 8, and not once does it talk about making daily decisions, the down-to-earth decisions, where to go to school, who to marry, where to live, what kind of career to choose. That's nowhere in the context. Second thing is that nothing in the context suggests directive guidance through inward impressions, vibrations, a sense of peace, a still small voice, or any of the other multitude of ways that people have have tried to articulate and explain this inner subjective uh, directive ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, some people may skip down to verse 16, which reads that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, and they stop there. It's like they don't read the rest of the verse. And the rest of the verse says what he's witnessing about. This, he does bear witness to us. There is some sort of assurance communicated by the Holy Spirit or some content that we're children of God. He communicates that. He gives us that sense of assurance. It's not, he, it doesn't say that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we ought to go to Texas A&M. Now, I know some of you may have thought that. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, now I know, that I'll get closer to home, it doesn't say the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that I should marry you. It doesn't say that either. Now I know that that's treading real, on, on real sensitive ground for some of you, but the Scripture does not say that. It says that he bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, that we are saved. That's the, what that's talking about is assurance of salvation. Third, there's no suggestion in the context of the goal of decision-making. It just isn't there. So how do we import how, uh, in decision-making into this passage? And if it's not there, what in the world does the leading of the Spirit mean? Anyway, I mean, this seems to be important. Well, Ryrie in that quote cited several passages that illustrated, he said, the principle from the book of Acts. And I just want to review these very quickly. The first example was from Acts 8, 28 and 29. And this is a situation where the Ethiopian eunuch is returning to his land. And on the way back, he's reading in Isaiah. Uh, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, t- tells, take, just transports Philip there and then tells him to run up, overtake the chariot, and talk to him and give him the gospel. So again, that special revelation. Uh, Acts 10, 19 and 20 while Peter thought about the vision, special revelation again, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking. The context again is special revelation. It's not day-to-day decision-making. Acts 13.2, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit is again giving special revelation. One of the questions that often occur 
comes to young men who think they ought to go in the ministry is how do you know that you God has called you to the ministry? Ooh. You know, you, a lot of guys get wrapped up around, how do I know? Well, do you think you have the gift of spiritual, the pastor-teacher? Do you think that's your spiritual gift? Uh, yeah. Uh, but God's not going to flash the lights. You're not going to go to bed at night and say, well, you know, if I wake up in the morning and the fleece is wet, then it'll be... I've got it, and if the fleece is dry, you, you don't do that. I mean, there's no such thing as the call. There's no uh, liver quiver that comes along that, that tells you that you have uh, a certain spiritual gift or to go in the ministry. It's a, once again, it's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of taking the doctrine that's in your soul and applying it. And the tragedy today is that we don't have young men who have the spiritual gumption, guts, intestinal fortitude to go to the training and be pastors. We're raising a generation of male spiritual wimps. They don't want to go in the mission field. They don't want to go be pastors. They want to go make money. And the really sad thing is not only are we raising a generation of spiritual or male spiritual wimps, we're raising a generation of female spiritual weenies. There was a study done at Denver Theological Seminary about five years ago, and they wanted, uh, they were concerned about the high divorce rate among their graduates. Now, 50 years ago, we had never thought about high divorce rates among seminary students. Why were there high divorce rates? Because when their husbands got out of seminary and they went to Podunk Junction Bible Church and got paid $40,000 a year, she couldn't have a BMW, and she didn't like it. She couldn't shop where she wanted to shop and go to Neiman Marcus and all these other places and live the lifestyle because there's such a thing as real sacrifice in the ministry time. And women just didn't want to put up with it. They didn't want to follow their, their man into serving the Lord and the material sacrifices that would go along with that. And so they said, well, I'm out of here. They found out that that the women had their career track and the men had their career track. And as long as there wasn't a conflict, it was okay. But as soon as he got invited to come pastor a church in one part of the country and uh, IBM wanted to transfer them to another part of the country, they went hostile, La Vista, baby, you're on your own. And now he's out of the pastorate. We're in a terrible state today. Young men don't aren't being challenged. Jim Myers has come back several times, and he's gone, and he's he's been to a variety of, of uh, doctrinal churches, raising support. And one of the things he said, Robbie, the pastors out there. I'm running down a big rabbit trail here. I'm I'm working on this. He said, pastors today aren't challenging the people in the church to be missionaries. They're not challenging them to be pastors. Pastors today aren't challenging the young people in their congregation to look upon full-time professional Christian work as a viable career alternative. And you know what one of the biggest obstacles is? Parents. Oh, no, no, you need to get a real job. You need to go to Texas. I can't tell you how many young men I had challenged over the years who really wanted to go to uh, Bible college and then to seminary. They wanted their to, to go into full-time professional Christian work. And parents came along and said, you need to learn to be an accountant or you need to learn to be a lawyer. You need to learn something where you can make some money, something you can fall back on. 
And so parents have no vision. I mean, you can be anything. It's all great for us to have a pastor who teaches the Word who's gone through six, eight years of sacrifice and training to be a pastor, and we need that, but not for my little Billy. And and my little Susie's going to marry a minister. What kind of minister? Minister of state? Minister of education? Gospel minister? Oh, no, we can't have that. People don't have lost this vision for the important, the most important job in the world. I remember hearing professors say this when I first went to seminary, and I didn't really grasp it at the time. The most significant job in the whole world is to be a pastor. That's an awesome responsibility, and it's an incredible privilege. Because if people don't have pastors who teach them how to live a spiritual life and grow spiritually, then how are they going to learn? How are they going to hear the gospel? How are they going to grow spiritually? How are they going to face the problems and difficulties in life without a knowledge of the Word. I mean, not, no job, no career is more vital, is more important, is more significant than being a pastor. But people would rather have the all of the facade of affluence and the material things that we have in life than to go through seminary. Seminary is costly. You can't go really learn to be a good pastor and a good exegete by going to listen to somebody's tapes. I mean, you can't, you can't learn to be a surgeon by just sitting up in the observation deck and watching a guy carve up people. You're not going to learn to be a surgeon that way. And yet we have all these churches and these pastors who didn't go to seminary, there's your first clue, who didn't go to seminary out of pure arrogance. I'm being judgmental, but then I know these guys. Out of pure arrogance because they were afraid they'd hear something they couldn't agree with. You know why they couldn't handle it? Insecurity. No, not enough doctrine to have discernment. That's what Hebrews is talking about. And the only way you're going to learn discernment is to hear something you don't agree with. If you always hear something you agree with, you'll never learn to think. You'll always be a spiritual cripple leaning on somebody or something else. And yet we have to have pastors who are challenging missionaries, challenging young people to be pastors. And if they don't have a vision to be missionaries or to be pastors, do you think these pastors and churches have a vision to support a seminary? No. Because a seminary is designed to train people. They don't, they're not interested in, challenge, in challenging anybody to go do. And that's why out of maybe 200 doctrinal churches across this country... There's less than 20 in a legitimate seminary training. And I bet there's probably less than 50 legitimate or illegitimate wanting to go into ministry. And I remember years ago, and you'd look on a prayer list in any of these churches, and you'd see 50, 60, 70 men listed who were going to Dallas Seminary, not to mention other seminaries. We have got to get back to basics in the Christian life. And the only way to do that is to get our priorities back on Scripture. Okay, where were we? You go through Acts. They separate to me Barnabas and Saul. This is not the call to the pastor. That's how I got off on that rabbit trail. This is not a call to the ministry. This, they're already, Paul was already designated an apostle. This is not doesn't have anything to do with that. This has to do with special revelation during the transition period where Barnabas and Saul were going to begin the big transition, which was taking the gospel to the Gentiles, 
as opposed to just a Jewish orientation, which it had been up to this point. Now in Romans 8.14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So what is this talking about? To understand this, we have to understand the context. That's another place where uh, I think exegesis and doctrinal teaching has broken down as we take so much time to analyze a phrase like led by the Spirit of God that we lose sight of the fact that it's in a context. And every phrase is in the context of a sentence. And different phrases take on different nuances depending on their context. For example, Romans 8.14 uses the phrase led by the Spirit of God. We have that phrase used three times in the Scripture. It's used in Romans 8.14. It's used in Galatians 5.16. Excuse me, Galatians 5.18. And it's used in Luke 4.1. Now, what's the difference in those three contexts? Galatians chapter 5 is almost a mirror image of Romans chapter 8. It's a contrast between walking by the Spirit and walking according to the flesh. What's Luke 4 talking about? Jesus being led by the Spirit went into the wilderness. It's a totally different context. There you have the impeccable incarnate second person of the Trinity And what's going on there has to do with his divine mission as the Messiah. And it's a totally different issue. It's during a different dispensation when there's still special revelation going on. So you see, context makes all the difference in the world. So you have to look at the, at the overall context. And you not only have a, uh, the, the immediate context, but you have any phrases in the context of a sentence. And every sentence is in the context of a paragraph, and every paragraph is in the context of a subsection of a book, and every subsection is in the subdivision of a, a, a subdivision of a book, and which is in the context of the whole book, which is in context of the uh, Pauline epistles or Petrine epistles or Johannine epistles, and that's within the context of the New Testament, and that's within the context of the whole Bible. And I remember the first time I heard that with. Uh, uh, Prof. Howard Hendricks up at Dallas Seminary Bible Study Methods and I started, went, huh? I thought all you need to do is just sit there and make sure you knew the how each verb fit grammatically within the sentence. But you need to know a whole lot more than that. And you have to look at the context. And Romans 8 is in the context of a three-chapter section in Romans that began in Romans 6, chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans 6, 7, and 8 focuses on the result of justification. In other words, how to live, how the justified believer is supposed to live now that he's saved. Romans starts off, in, and I think I have a chart on this in just a minute. Here we go. Romans 1 through 3. Uh, Romans one seventeen is actually the key verse for Romans. Structurally, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God, what's that? That relates to God's justice. It's the Greek word dikaiosune, which can either mean justice or righteousness, depending on the context. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is God's justice, his, his integrity, is manifested in human history. It is revealed from faith to faith, from saving faith to spiritual growth faith. Two different categories of faith. For it is written, the just, those who are justified by faith, shall live. 
Those who are justified by faith shall live. Now, that's different from the translation you have in your Bible. Your Bible probably translates that, the justified shall live by faith. That's not what it's talking about. It says the, uh, those who are justified by faith shall live. first part of Romans talks about what it means to be justified by faith. And then starting in chapter 6, it's talking about how the, those who are justified by faith are to live the spiritual life. And Paul develops his argument, his structure of his, what he's trying to teach uh, in a very orderly manner. In the first three chapters, he demonstrates that Jew and Gentile alike all violate God's righteous standard. Jew and Gentile all violate God's righteous standard. In the verse we should all have memorized, and everybody here should know, is in Romans 3.23, for the wages... No, Romans, yeah, no, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the conclusion. Jews have sinned, Gentiles have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Revelation 4 through 5. God freely gives his righteousness through faith alone. The example here is, is uh, Abraham. That God uh, imputed his righteousness to Abraham when he expressed his faith. That's the foundation. So God freely gives his righteousness to the individual when they have faith alone in Christ alone. The result of that is peace with God, chapter 5. Now that you've got them lost in chapters 1 through 3, justified in chapters 4 through 5, how do they live? And that's chapter 6. The justified believer should consider himself a slave of righteousness because there's been a change that's taken place. You're no longer a slave to the sin nature. You are now a slave to righteousness positionally. But you and I both know that we like to go back to that those old bad habits of being a slave to the sin nature, and that's what Paul's struggling with in chapter 7, that perfect righteousness cannot be produced by the believer alone. He still goes back to becoming a slave to that sin nature, even though positionally he's been freed. And it's not until chapter 8 that you have the Holy Spirit mentioned. There's no, Holy Spirit's not mentioned in chapter 6. Holy Spirit's not mentioned in chapter 7. You don't get the Holy Spirit until chapter 8. Only the Holy Spirit can produce righteousness in the life of the justified believer. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. It's a contrast between the believer who's living his life according to the Spirit and the believer who's living his life according to the sin nature. Now, golly, haven't we seen that somewhere else before? That's what Galatians 5 is doing. And it's in that context that we have this statement that those who are led by the Spirit are the sons, the mature sons, the mature children of God. Now, Romans 8 has to be understood within the context, then, of Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 8, 1 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word for condemnation is the Greek word katakrima, which is only used three times in the New Testament. And all three, other than this time, all three are in Romans chapter 5. Because it was condemnation because of sin. What we learn is that the believer 
is no longer under a judicial penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven. There is therefore now no condemnation, no judicial penalty. So this very statement, Romans 8, 1, throws us back to the use of condemnation in Romans 5, which was talking about uh, the justification. Point number two. The arena of application here, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are where? In Christ. It's positional truth. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, and I bet some of you thought that was water baptism, because there's so many people come along and want to make that water baptism, but there's six different kinds of, or actually there's eight different kinds of baptism in the, in the Bible. And only, uh, only three of them are wet. The rest of them are dry. In fact, when you have the baptism of Noah, the wet ones are the ones that die. It's the dry ones that are secured. When you have the baptism of Moses, the wet ones are the ones that die. It's the dry ones who went through the, the Red Sea dry that are the ones that are saved. So we have to define baptism. It means identification. That's its significance. And baptism means to be identified with something. And so we read, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It positionally separates us and completely separates us from everything that preceded our salvation. So the arena of application of Romans 8.1, therefore now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, takes us right back to what occurred at the instant of salvation. So point number three, verse 1, that is Romans 8.1, reviews the point established in Romans 6.1 through 5, which emphasizes, A, the potential of walking in new life. That's what Romans 6 is all about. That don't you know? See, he starts off with the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let's just, you know, God is gracious. He forgives us. Let's just go out and sin. That's the antinomian's answer. Let's just, you know, the more we sin, the more God gets to be gracious to us. The more grace, the more wonderful it is, right? So let's just keep sinning. And Paul says, no. Certainly not. That's a mild way of putting it. It's a very strong negation. Of, co- of course not. How absurd. Uh, I kind of like the old King James. God forbid. I mean, it just catches the sense of the, of the Greek. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We can't. I mean, that's what Paul is saying here. If you're a believer and you're capturing, you understand what happened to you at salvation in terms of your identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, how in the world can you think that you can just go on sinning and living like you did before you were saved? You can, but how can you? I mean, you obviously don't understand the divine transaction at the cross. Once you do, you begin to realize that things change. There's a potential now of walking in new life because the old life is over with. So B, there's an emancipation from the tyranny of the sin nature, but not the presence of the sin nature. 
Before you were saved, the only thing you could do is live your life according to the sin nature. Did you realize that? Before you're saved, that's all you can do. You may produce a lot of human good and a lot of morality and a lot of religious observance, but it still comes out of your sin nature because there's only two options, sin nature or Holy Spirit. And if it's not coming from the Holy Spirit, and it can't when you're an unbeliever, then it can only come from the, from the sin nature. So that's all you could do. You were a slave, Paul says in this chapter, to the, to the sin nature. But you've been emancipated. The trouble is... It's just like in the South after the War of Northern Aggression. There were all these, all these slaves that were freed, but they didn't have any capacity for life. They didn't have any education. They didn't have any training. So they, they just stayed on the plantation. Now, you won't be taught that in schools anymore. They want to make it sound like there was just black flight up to the north, but that's not true. Uh, many of them stayed because that was the only family they knew. And they stayed, and they stayed on that plantation for two or three generations, but they were free. They really had the potential to go somewhere else, but because they didn't have any knowledge, they couldn't live as if they were free. They still thought, acted as slaves. You see the same dynamic going on with the Exodus generation. No capacity, because capacity for freedom comes from knowledge. Knowledge of the Word, capacity for freedom in the spiritual life is the same way. It's coming from knowledge of the Word, knowledge of what happens, the transaction that occurs on the cross and its implication for our life. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 6. So Romans 8.1 takes us right back to a summary of what he has already said in Romans 6. That Therefore there, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So right here we begin to see that there is a contrast between two polar opposites. There's a contrast between two mutually exclusive realities or principles. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus versus the law of sin and of death. These are opposites. Who's he talking to? Believers or unbelievers? He's talking to believers. So when you talk about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, he's talking about the fact that in Christ, where there's no condemnation, there is this principle of life. But see, if you're not applying the principles of doctrine, it's not being actuated in your spiritual life. It's just a potential. But a lot of believers are still living under uh, under the control of the sin nature so law here recognizes a principle you either have the principle of the spirit of life in Christ or the principle of the law of sin and death life and death are opposites we have to remember that there are seven different kinds of death in the scripture there's spiritual death which is a foundation of all the other kinds of death there is uh, physical death sexual death positional death carnal death, operational death, and the second death. Those are all the different kinds of death. Now, what's he talking about here? I know I went through that fast, but you've heard most of that before. What he's talking about here is operational death. He's not talking about dying physically. He's not talking about spiritual death. He's talking about the fact that when we operate on the sin nature, we are operationally dead, producing dead works. We're we're in carnality. The term life also has different nuances in the Scripture. You have eternal life, which means never-ending life, 
but we also have life in the sense of the fullness of life, the abundant life that God has for us. Jesus came, said, I came not as a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life into what? Give life abundantly. It's the rich, full orb dimension of life that Jesus Christ promises for us, and that comes only by walking by the Holy Spirit. So that's the contrast here, is to fully experience the potential of your new life in Christ or live like you're still an unbeliever. Now, to understand the context here, we have to go down to Romans 8, verse 12, where Paul says, So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, see, the problem that we have here is we're running out of time. The problem that we have here is that we have all these great sinful habit patterns. I mean, they really work for us, don't they? They bring us a lot of pleasure. They uh, help alleviate a lot of uh, a, a lot of adversity. And when we come under a lot of tension and we blow off steam, we get mad and we yell at people and bite their heads off or whatever we do. Everybody's got their own thing or we whatever's going on in your thought life or whatever. But those are our, our human viewpoint escape valves that deal with the pressure that's built up in our soul as a result uh, of adversity. And we just feel like that's how we have to respond in those circumstances because for 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years, that's been our habit pattern, and it works for us. I don't like a lot of what he says, but a lot of what he says is just common. But some of what he says is just good common sense. But old Dr. Phil just says, and, and that's really working for you, isn't it? Yeah. The sin nature really works for us a lot. That's why we chose those habit patterns, and they're sinful habit patterns, because it appears to work for us. But ultimately, it breaks down. Ultimately, we're going to, we're going to pay the... Uh, pay the piper. It, we're, ultimately, we're going to have to uh, we're going to reap what we've sown. So Paul says we're not under obligation to the flesh. We are, and are we're, excuse me. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, who's the you referring to here? You Roman unbelievers? No, you Roman believers. You West Houston Bible Church believers, that's who he's talking to. For if you are living according to the flesh, if you're living according to the sin nature, flesh means sin nature, what? You must die. It's operational death. He's not talking about physical death here. It's not the sin unto death, any of those things. If you're living according to the sin nature, you're going to be in operational death. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ha! That means... When, when, when we get in those situations and the natural habit pattern we've had for years, we've all got them, and we want to respond to that situation in, in, in sin the way we always have, what this is saying is you don't have to. You're not under obligation to do that. You can break that habit because you have the Holy Spirit who gives you the option now to live according to the Holy Spirit and apply the principles of doctrine and and where there's real change. You know, some people think people can't ever change. Well, the Word of God says you can change. Anybody can change. There's real hope, but it's only if you're using the Word of God with the Spirit of God and you're serious about it. And most people aren't serious about it because why? Because you've got real comfortable sin patterns that have been working for them for years, and even when they get, when they get past it a certain bit, okay, 
I'm out of that trouble. I'm out of that jam. Everything's working out. I'm going to go back. And I'm going to go. Because they really worked for me. That was my comfort zone. And see what the spiritual life really is all about is getting you out of your comfort zone into a life of walking by the Holy Spirit. And that's not necessarily fun or pleasant. So you see there's a contrast in Romans between living according to the flesh and living by the Spirit. Well, we'll stop there. I want to take more time going through, take some more time to go through these passages in Romans because it's so important to understand Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of the most important chapters in the Scripture on the spiritual life. And then we'll go from there into Galatians 5 to deal with a proper understanding of this whole concept leading by the Spirit. But it doesn't have anything to do with divine guidance. I had a lady in my class this morning say, Well, the Spirit led me here. The Spirit being Houston. The Spirit never led anybody to Houston. Not in the biblical use of the term lead. Okay? Divine providence may have directed your steps here, but don't use a biblical phrase in a non-biblical way. Because what happens then is, and this is what happens, how, the, 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 uh, how Satan destroys biblical vocabulary is we start using biblical terms in non-biblical ways. The next thing that happens is those non-biblical ways then become imported into the Scripture, and now we're misinterpreting the Scripture because we're taking that non-biblical use of a ter- term or phrase and reading it back into the Scripture. So I'm just trying to straighten out a lot of sloppy vocabulary, hopefully in the process give you a better understanding of how to live the spiritual life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and pray that you would just help us to think through these things, challenge us to desire to push on to spiritual maturity to a more intimate relationship with you through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.